You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now we turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Just so you don't end up spending half the sermon looking for that, I'll make it easy for you. If you go to the end of your Old Testament, it is the second from the last book of your Old Testament. Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew. If you're in Awana, you probably memorize the books of the Old Testament, but I never have, and so anytime somebody says turn to a minor prophet, I always turn to Daniel, and then I start flipping toward the New Testament until I get to whatever prophet. I do that every time with Amos when Tim preaches. All right, let's uh, bow together before we begin. This book is Zechariah chapter 9, by the way. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, it is in Your Word that You speak to us. and In Your Word is a sure and true revelation of who You are and Your will for us and Your future plans for us and for Your church and for Your people, for the nation of Israel. We thank You that You have given to us such clear revelation. We pray that You would open our eyes and our hearts to understand it and to apply it, to live out the truth and to place our faith and our trust in You the God who always keeps His promises and loves those who are Yours. We thank You for Your Word and ask this from You today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the second week in a row, I have not asked you to turn to the Gospel of John, but instead to turn to an Old Testament passage, because we are looking at two passages last week and this week that are quoted in John chapter 12. The first one we looked at last week is Psalm 118, and that was quoted in all four of the Synoptic Gospels, or sorry, all four of the Gospels, the synoptics as well as John. Uh, Psalm 118 is quoted by all four Gospels as the, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the back of the, of the donkey and the crowd cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we looked at Psalm 118 last week. Today we're looking at a second passage that is quoted by the Gospel writers in connection with that Palm Sunday event. And that is Zechariah chapter 9. And we're specifically going to be looking at verses 9 and 10 of that chapter. And uh, that is the passage that is quoted by Matthew and John. Mark and Luke don't mention it, but Matthew and John both quote Zechariah chapter 9 pertaining to Jesus riding into the back, uh, riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. So we went quickly through uh, Psalm 118 last week and it was, it was a flyby for sure. Today we're actually going to be covering even more material and moving even more quickly and we're going to cover really the entire book of Zechariah. And that is going to seem daunting at first, but I will tell you how we're we're going to do it. First, we're not going to read the entire book. It would take the better part of 45 minutes just to read all 14 chapters of the book. So we're not going to read everything because I wouldn't even be able to give you background and any kind of an explanation or commentary or anything like that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an overview of the entire book, kind of like a satellite view of Zechariah and his times. Then we're going to focus in... Uh, a little more narrowly on chapters 9 through 14 and kind of catch the context of those. Then we're going to focus in even closer on chapter 9 and we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. And then we're going to zero in really closely on chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 specifically and cover those in great detail. And I think that by the time we're done here, you will have a real appreciation for the book of Zechariah. Now, if I, and I'm not going to do this, so don't raise your hand, but if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you have read the book of Zechariah in the last year? Unless you are in the, Deidre, thank you, Deidre, yes. 
I guarantee you, if she had not read it, and I had asked, how many of you have not read the book of Zechariah last year, she wouldn't have raised her hand. Okay, if I have, if I ask for a show of hands, how many of you have read through the book of Zechariah in the last year? I doubt that, oh, another one, thank you very much. We can do this all day. <clears throat> I doubt that many of you would raise your hand. I doubt that all of you would raise your hand, because unless you are in the habit of reading through the Bible once in a year, Zechariah is probably not on your short list of books to spend your Mondays, Monday mornings over with a cup of coffee. Most Christians, when they wake up and they think, what book of the Bible should I read through with my cup of coffee in the morning, do not, do not gravitate toward the minor prophets. Unless you're Tim, then you sit there and drool all morning over Amos. But if you, if you're a normal person, you don't gravitate toward the minor prophets, specifically not Zechariah. In fact, you may have read through Zechariah recently and thought to yourself when you got done, it's going to be a long time before I read through that again because the first eight chapters of that were some tough slugging and I don't have any idea what I just read because it is very confusing. My hope is that by the time we are done today, you will have an appreciation for this Old Testament prophet. You'll have some idea of how the Jews understood this book and what this book meant to Old Testament Jews and why it was that when the Gospel writers uh, quoted from Zechariah in relationship to Jesus, what they were saying about the person of Christ. So Zechariah, first let's begin with some of his, his sort of his times. We're not going to, don't start in chapter 1 because like I said, we're not going to read the first eight chapters. I'm just going to give you an overview real quick of the book and the setting. Zechariah comes at the end of our Old Testament, and chronologically that's appropriate. Logically it is also appropriate because of when Zechariah wrote. Uh, Zechariah is part of what we call the Minor Prophets, which is the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And he comes right before the end of our Old Testament books because Zechariah wrote right before the end of the Old Testament era. In fact, he writes in about 500 B.C., Now, backing up before 500 B.C., let me set a bit of context for you for what Zechariah came out of and what type of times he lived in. You remember the kingdom under David was a united kingdom. David had gotten the kingdom from Saul. Uh, After David's rule, Solomon took over. That was the Psalm 72 that we we read there. Uh, Solomon had a united kingdom. When Solomon died, the kingdom was split into what what the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, had a series of wicked and bad kings, all of them unrighteous, not a single good king, none of them. In the whole the whole history of that nation, not a single righteous king. And they eventually fell to the Assyrians after many prophetic warnings in 722 B.C. 722 years before the Lord, uh, the northern kingdom fell captive to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came in, they conquered them, they destroyed them. They, they basically intermingled with the people, and that is how you got the Samaritans, which was the intermingling of the Jews with the Assyrians during that time period. You remember Amos prophesied to the northern kingdom. Remember, he came from the southern kingdom. You remember from Tim's study of the book of Amos, he went up to the border, just crossed the border, and made his predictions to the northern kingdom about the judgment that was going to come because of their wickedness and their sin. Well, that was the judgment that came. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquered them. The southern kingdom had a few righteous kings, quite a few, concerning, considering how many the northern kingdom had. They had a few righteous kings, but for the most part, they were plagued by the same type of idolatry and wickedness and uh, straying from God's ways that the northern kingdom was plagued with. They lasted another 140 years, roughly, and they fell to the Babylonians, finally, in 586 or 597, depending on how you date some of the events and some of the deportations. So the Babylonians came and conquered the southern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Judah. And they laid siege against Jerusalem and came in. They destroyed the temple. 586 years before the Lord, they destroyed that temple. They wiped out the, the worship of God in the city of Jerusalem. And they took captive a number of people back to Babylon with them. So rather than intermingling with the people, they had a different strategy. They would take some of the best of the lands that they conquered and they would export them 
back to their capital city. And that's where how Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego got into Babylon. They were taken. They were the best of the land. And those men were taken to Babylon. And there Daniel served the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And eventually, in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel tells the story of how Babylon was conquered by the the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Darius took the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar. Came in, sacked the city of of Babylon. uh, Really took it without a fight because they came in underneath the gates. It's a fascinating story. They took the city of Babylon without a fight. And the Medes and the Persians took over that. Daniel ministered under Nebuchadnezzar and under Darius and under various other Medo-Persian kings. And Jeremiah had predicted that this captivity, the Babylonian captivity, would last 70 years, which it did. Finally, the Medes and the Persians, when they took over the city of Babylon, one of the kings of the Medo-Persian Empire was very sympathetic to the Jews, and he issued a decree that anybody who wanted to leave Babylon and go back to their homeland of the Jews in Jerusalem and rebuild was able to do that. And so then you had a series of returns to the homeland. The first return was under Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel went back to rebuild the temple. That was his so the burden that God put on his heart. The second return was under Ezra. Ezra went back to rebuild the people because the worship needed to be reformed and people needed to be built up and encouraged and taught the scriptures. That's what Ezra did. After him was Nehemiah. Nehemiah returned to rebuild the wall. So you had Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple, Ezra rebuilding the people, and Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. And all of that took place toward the end of the Old Testament era. And you had several prophets who were working with Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and Ezra during that period of time. Two of the prophets from our Old Testament books were Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah takes place, Zechariah came out of Babylon back to Jerusalem to help rebuild with that effort, to replant the homeland. So Zechariah comes after Daniel. Daniel was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon against his will, and he prophesied in Babylon. Zechariah went from Babylon back to Jerusalem quite willingly, and he prophesied in Jerusalem. So Zechariah is what we call a post-exilic or post-exile, after-the-exile prophet. And he went back to Jerusalem, and his book is basically divided into two parts. Here's the division of his book. The first half of the book of Zechariah, chapters 1 to 8, 1 through 8, is, has it, let me start here. The book of Zechariah is divided into two parts, chapters 1 to 8, chapters 9 through 14. The first eight chapters are filled with very mysterious sounding visions, visions that the meaning is not obvious on the surface of it until sometimes the meaning is interpreted right even within the text itself. The second half of the book is kind of entirely different. It's more direct prophecies, the type of prophecies that we would be used to reading from the Old Testament where the prophet describes something that was going to happen in in very specific detail. Some of them judgments that were going to come upon pagan nations. The first half, chapters 1 to 8, deals with the events that surrounded Zechariah himself. Very, very current, very contemporary to Zechariah because he was preaching to the people and encouraging the people and prophesying to the people for the sake of encouraging them in rebuilding the temple. The second half of the book, Zechariah is not dealing with things that pertain to him in his contemporary situation, but Zechariah was looking way distant into the future. In some cases, Zechariah was looking at 150 years into the future, to the time of Alexander the Great. We're going to see this in chapter 9. In some cases, Zechariah was looking even beyond our time, some 2,500 years or more into the future, as he looked forward to what God was going to do at the end of time. So the, the two halves of Zechariah are entirely different, and you will read people um, that will say, because the style is different, because the type of prophecies is different, they believe that Zechariah, the book, was written by two different people. That is just hogwash. There's no need to believe that whatsoever. Just because one author writes two different styles of writing does not mean that they were written by two different people. 
Skeptics and critics will constantly do this with the New Testament. They do it with the, the books of Moses. They say it was written by four different people. It's called the Documentary Hypothesis. They do it with Isaiah. Isaiah has two different types of prophecies. They say it was written by two different people. That is just nonsense. Every month, well, I hope every month, you read the newsletter, and you have the article that I write and the building update that I write. They're two totally different styles of writing to two totally different intentions and two totally different subjects. But just you would be a fool to think that because they're two different styles of writing that they were written by two different people. I write both of those things, two different styles. And just because I write both of those things in two different styles with two different intentions does not mean it's two different people. I'm not schizophrenic. I don't have multiple personalities. One I use to write the building update and one I use to write the article. It's two different styles, yes, but it's one author. It's the same with Zechariah. Two very different halves to his book, but written by the same man, probably in two different time periods. One during the building of the temple and the second half after the building of the temple. The first half dealing with things inside his contemporary time span mostly, but the second half looking way into the future as an encouragement to God's people. So now let's zero in on the last half of the book of Zechariah, chapters 9 through 14. So you're in chapter 9. Kind of give you a bird's eye view of chapter 9. Zechariah has been called by one commentator, George Robinson, the most, listen to this quote, the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings of the Old Testament, end quote. The most messianic, the most apocalyptic, and the most eschatological, meaning having to do with the end times, of all the Old Testament writings. Now that's quite a statement, and it might be an overstatement, given that Zechariah would have to compete with Isaiah and Daniel for that title. Because they are very eschatological, they're very messianic, and they are very apocalyptic. But Zechariah would certainly be in the running for that title, because the last half of his book looks right to the end of time, and we see things that we are familiar with in the last part of his book. Nestle and Olland, in their 27th edition of the Greek New Testament, cite 41 allusions or quotations of Zechariah in the New Testament. 41 allusions or quotations of Zechariah in the New Testament from just 14 books. That is incredible. That tells us that the book of Zechariah is an incredibly messianic book. Zechariah is a messianic writer. He is he sees all kinds of things relating to the coming Messiah. Let me give you an example of some of them. Turn to chapter 11. We'll look at a few passages here real quickly before we zero in on chapter 9. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 is kind of a fascinating thing. There's, there's, there's two contrasting things going on in chapter 11. And as soon as I read you this passage, you're going to recognize it right away. The two contrasting things going on in chapter 11. Zechariah was called to be a shepherd, a good shepherd, to a people doomed for destruction, the text says in verse 4, I think it is. To be a good shepherd, to pastor the flock doomed to destruction. So Zechariah did this, and he was a good shepherd to the people. And then it says in verse 12, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages as a shepherd. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued for them. That's sarcasm, by the way. Oh, they valued my shepherding of them through Zechariah at what? 30 shekels. Now, you think of a New Testament thing that is fulfilled by that. Certainly you can, right? Who was the good shepherd who shepherded the people, doomed for destruction? Who was that good shepherd who was valued by the leaders of the nation of Israel as worth 30 shekels or 30 pieces of silver? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage was fulfilled at the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was how they, the shepherds of the nation of Israel, the leaders of the nation of Israel, that is how they valued God in shepherding them, worth 30 shekels. And they had him betrayed for that amount. Now look at verse chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. 
so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of over a firstborn. Now that hasn't been fulfilled yet. But that speaks of a time when God would do something in the hearts of his people in the house of David in the city of Jerusalem, when they would look on me, God says, whom they have pierced. By the way, there's a reference there to Trinitarian theology. You'll notice the distinction where God says they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him, first person and third person. That is the that is the fine distinction of Trinitarian theology, that God can say that he was pierced, but the Father can say of him, that is the Son, that it was the Son that was pierced. And this passage is quoted by John in John chapter 19, verse 37, where after they thrust the, sword, the, the, the spear into the side of Jesus, John quotes this passage and said, this is fulfilled in Jesus when they pierced him. Because there's coming a time when the nation of Israel will look on the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn over him. They will recognize he is our Messiah, and that's what we did to him. That is yet future. That has never been fulfilled. The, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel have never looked on Christ and mourned over him as one whom they pierced, and recognized that is our God and that is our Messiah. That has not happened. That has yet to be fulfilled. Look at chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Does that sound familiar? You know when that happened? That was actually quoted in Matthew and in Mark. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he predicted to his disciples, you are going to flee from me. You're going to turn and you're going to run. You're going to disown me and be unfaithful. And, the, and, the, this, and Jesus quoted from this passage. He knew that they would do that because this passage had to be fulfilled. And what did Peter say? No, no, if everybody denies you, I will not. The rest of these 11 clowns might deny you, but I will stay faithful to you. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So this passage here in Zechariah was quoted on the night of Jesus' betrayal. And then look at chapter 14. This is a familiar one having to do with the end of time. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations because verse 1 and 2 say that God is going to gather together all the nations to fight against his people. This is going to be an act of judgment. I believe it's going to happen during a tribulation period. God is going to gather together the nations to fight against his people. And then God is going to go ahead and for his own glory, he is going to return. Christ is going to return and judge those people at that final battle. Verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Does that happen? No, but associated with the return of Christ, all the Old Testaments, the, the Old Testament prophets who speak of the return of Christ speak of these massive geological changes that will occur when he comes back to this earth to establish his kingdom. It's going to be radically different. One of the things is that the Mount of Olives is going to split from east to west and half is going to move to the north and half to the south. There's going to be massive geological changes to that region of the world and actually to all the world uh, with the coming of Christ. And chapter 14 describes that. Now, back to chapter 9. Let's focus in on chapter 9. So you have this concept that Zechariah is describing. He's looking forward in the last half of the book to this time when the Messiah would come. And he has all of these glimpses. And you've seen in some of these passages, familiar passages, that speak of the first coming of Christ. And there are passages which speak of the second coming of Christ. There are two different two different events or two different time periods that Zechariah is describing. And not in any particular order. You'll notice that. He's just... Chapter 9 has to do with his first coming and his second coming, some of that. But as you work your way through the last part of the chapter, uh, the last chapters of this book, you will see passages that describe things that have happened with his first coming. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And things that describe things that are going to happen with his second coming when he splits the Mount of Olives and returns and fights against the nations and gathers them together for that day of battle. 
So that's what the Jews saw in the book of Zechariah, where all of these promises about the person and the work of their Messiah. Now chapter 9. In order to catch the context, I want to go over verses 1 through 8 real quick. So we're going to read these. Verses 1 through 8. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, which Damas- with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. The burden of the Lord refers to an oracle or a prophetic vision. Usually it was associated with judgment. It was some heavy news that he is bringing, and the prophet is doing that. He's getting an oracle or a vision from God about a judgment that was coming, and now he is going to list the subjects or the recipients of this judgment. Verse 2, And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built for herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Now, in that passage, the Lord is describing there something that was still yet future to Zechariah. In fact, most conservative, and I will say conservative because by the conservative, I mean people who take Scripture seriously as inspired. Most conservative Bible scholars believe that the events of chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 were fulfilled in the battles and the conquering of Alexander the Great. It is almost as if Zechariah is describing the, the war campaign of Alexander the Great in these first eight verses. And all of these cities that are targeted here are cities that Alexander the Great conquered in 333 B.C. and a few years after that. So this is 150 years future to the time that Zechariah wrote. And he's looking forward to the ultimate judgment upon these cities. And one of them that he names is Tyre and Sidon. And you'll notice that he says of Tyre, verse 3, Tyre has built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust. Tyre viewed itself as as impregnable, uh, uh, unconquerable. Let's use that word since I can't pronounce the other one. Tyre viewed itself as unconquerable. It had many people come against it and lay siege to it, and it had never fallen. And it was very proud, a very proud city, very filled with wealth. You'll notice that he describes in verse 3, they had piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Wealth was everywhere. It was a seaport city. It was kind of on an island. It was wealthy, incredibly proud, incredibly uh, uh, fortified, and nobody could take it. But listen. When you set yourself up as an enemy of God, and this should be a warning to every world ruler in every nation, when you set yourself up as an enemy of God and violate His law, it does not matter how wealthy you are, how powerful you are, how good your military is, or how wise your leadership is. When God sets you as His target, He will bring you down. And it might take decades, it might take centuries, but God will have His way and it will never be pretty when it happens. And Tyre had set himself themselves up as an unconquerable city. The Assyrians had come against Tyre and they had laid siege to that city for five years and never conquered it. Five years. The Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, had come against the city of Tyre and laid siege to that city for 13 years and never conquered it. Alexander the Great did it in seven months. Seven months. And he destroyed Tyre. And it has never been what it was. He came in and and destroyed them. And not only did he destroy Tyre, when he came across from Greece, he came across the Mediterranean and made landfall in Israel and went right past the city of Jerusalem and on into those other regions, pushing east toward China and north up into Assyria. And he conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And in 333 B.C. was the Battle of Issus, where Alexander the Great conquered the troops and the army of the Persian king, Darius III. And Alexander was outnumbered by a factor of six to one. And then when he got done conquering all of that, he went right back past Israel and never, never even set foot in Jerusalem. And you're going to see why in just a second. So all of this in verses 1 to 8 describes the conquering and the exploits of Alexander the Great 150 years after Zechariah. And when, when the Persians fell to the Greeks, verse, where are we at? Verse 5. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Now these city names, four out of the five Philistine cities are mentioned in these next couple of verses. 
Ascalon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Also, Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ascalon will not be inhabited, and a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. Ashdod is the fourth of those five Philistine cities. So he is describing not only the conquering of Alexander the Great taking over the Persian Empire, but when he got done with that, he came back through, he got tired, he got all of these Philistine cities, he conquered all of them. And it would turn your stomach if I told you the exploits of Alexander the Great when he came into these Philistine cities. But it says in verse 6 that the pride of the Philistines would be cut off. He was going to destroy the pride of the Philistine nations. You know what the pride of the Philistine nation was? It was not only their their military prowess, which Alexander the Great just destroyed, but it was their sort of ethnic and racial and national purity. And that's why it says in verse 6 that a mongrel race would inhabit one of their capital cities. This is what God did to these cities who violated his law to the Philistines. They came in, Alexander the Great did, and there was a bunch of racially polluted people who dwelt in all these Philistine cities, and that was the destruction of Philistine pride. Absolutely destroyed it. And by the way, everything that Zechariah foresaw 150 years came to pass at the hands of Alexander the Great, exactly as it is written in the minutest detail in this passage. Verse 8, I will camp around, sorry, verse 7, I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. They will also be a remnant for our God and be like the clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Now, part of that verse has been fulfilled. Part of it has not. The part that has been fulfilled is God dealing with their pagan sacrifices, which is probably what is referred to by the removing the blood from their mouth and the detestable things from between their teeth. Probably a reference to their bloody idol sacrifices and the celebrations that went with that. And God says, I'm going to bring that to an end, all of their idolatry. But the second half of verse 7 has not been fulfilled when these nations who at this time were warring against God would be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. That would be people who worshiped God. So there is two parts to this prophecy. One of these one of these looks forward to just the conquering of Alexander the Great, but one of them looks forward to a time when these pagan nations would all give homage to the one true God of Israel. And that has never happened. There's no record with all of the conquering and exploits of Alexander the Great, there's no record that these pagan nations ever gave homage to the God of Israel or ever turned to him. That has not yet happened, but it will happen. And Zechariah describes later on when that is going to happen. Now verse 8, But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. Who was the one who passed by and returned? It was Alexander the Great. He made landfall in Israel. He walked past Jerusalem, never sacked the city, never touched it. Walked past Jerusalem, conquered all these other nations, all these other capital cities, went back past Jerusalem and never laid siege to it, never conquered it, never touched it, never ransacked it, didn't lay his hands on it. Why? God said, I'm going to stand guard over my city. So this is the Lord saying through Zechariah, these things are going to happen to all of these other nations, but I myself will protect my city. And this is fitting, fits one of the themes of the entire book of Zechariah, where if you read from the very beginning, you see God saying to the nation of Israel, I'm jealous again for Jerusalem. I've not abandoned my people. I'm jealous again for my land, for my temple, for my people, for Jerusalem, for that city. I am going to reestablish this again. God has this passion again for the city of Jerusalem. And here in verse 8, I will protect it from him who passes by, goes by, and then passes by again. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore. Now that has not been fulfilled either, but there is going to be a time when Israel will be delivered from all of its enemies, foreign and domestic, and they will dwell in safety, and they will dwell in safety forevermore. And God says in verse 8, For now I have seen with my eyes. Now verse 9, there's a little bit of a change here. But this is spoken to them in the context of these promises of judgment upon other nations. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So now we're going to focus in now on chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And this is the passage, verse 9, that is quoted by Matthew and by John in connection with Palm Sunday. So now you have an idea of what the book of Zechariah is about. You have an idea of what chapters 9 through 14 is about. And now you know specifically what chapters 1 through, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9 are about. Now look at verses 9 and 10. The daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem is a way of referring to those who inhabited those regions or that city. So this is a promise now. God is narrowing his focus from the other nations and the judgment that was coming upon them and God's preservation of his people from them. He is focusing now on giving a promise to his people, the daughter of Jerusalem and the daughter of Jerusalem and daughter of Zion. And here's the promise. Behold, your king is coming to you. That's the promise. Now there is virtually nothing that you could have written in verse 9 that would have sounded more far-fetched and more unbelievable and more unattainable than this prophet, than this prophecy, this prediction, your king is coming to you. And here's why it sounded far-fetched and unattainable to the Jews of Zechariah's day. God was promising through Zechariah a king for this nation. Now the Jews had always longed for and looked forward to this coming king. There was one that was promised who would be a descendant of David, to whom God would set over the throne of David and he would rule the nations with a rod of iron. He would be the, the greater son of David who would be the fulfillment of the covenant and a blessing not only to the nation of Israel but to all peoples. And the Old Testament Jews longed for that. They looked forward to that. They were waiting for the king. But now they had come back from Babylon and they're back into a city, a city with no walls and no palace and no king and no discernible Davidic line and no administration to rule over. They had a governor, but he was appointed by the Persian Empire. So they had one guy who kind of ruled over it. And in some cases, in one case, it was Zerubbabel. And later on, it was Nehemiah. Those were the governors of that little tiny region inside of Judea. But they had no Davidic kingdom for a king to come and take back over. There was no army. There was no wall around the city, no palace, no religion, no temple, nothing. So there's nothing more far-fetched and inconceivable than the promise that they would be given a king. And it would be an encouragement to them for this reason. The Jews coming out of Babylon would have been asking themselves this question. Have the promises of God to our nation, to David, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to our people, have those promises been nullified and set aside because of our disobedience? Because we fell into idolatry and we turned our backs on God. And he sent us away into captivity and it was the most humiliating time for that nation. They had spent 70 years giving homage to pagan kings surrounded by idols, surrounded by idolatry, surrounded by pagan God-haters. It was a miserable time for the nation of Israel. And so now the question would be, has our disobedience nullified the promises of God to our people? What is he going to do with this? Is God going to make his word null and void? Because we have not kept our part of the bargain. Is God going to set us aside and now pick up some other nation and fulfill his promises through some other means? Or is God still going to do something with our nation because of his promise to David? And here's the promise. Your king will come to you. I see that would be encouraging. Because now the, now the people had come, who had returned back from the captivity have this promise. There is still a king coming. That was God's way of saying, I have not cast you off. You are my people. I have not cast you off because of your disobedience. I will still be faithful to fulfill the word that I gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to David. I will keep my word just as I had given it originally. Your king will come. And now look at the nature of this king. Verse 9. He is just, endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey. Four things there. First, just. He is a just king. 
The idea of a just king, the word just there, by the way, is the word that comes from the word righteous or righteousness. And it means not just somebody who does righteous things, somebody who does things pleasing to God or in keeping with God's law, but the word actually refers to somebody who is, as one commentator put it, and I love this description, animated by righteousness. Animated by righteousness. Not just somebody who does righteous things, but somebody who is himself completely righteous. Righteous in character, righteous in thought, just and righteous in deeds and in word and in all of his actions, they are righteous. He doesn't just do righteous things. He is animated by righteousness. And we know who this king is. This is Jesus Christ that's being described. And he is, as Scripture refers to him, as the righteous one. And he gives righteousness to his people. Now the people had been, the people's in the people's experience, they were completely unexpecting a righteous king. They were completely unfamiliar with any kind of king of righteousness. Had any of the kings before the captivity been righteous in this sense? None of them had been animated by righteousness. There were a few of them here and there scattered throughout their history who had pleased the Lord, but not since David had anybody had the type of favor that God gave to David. None of the kings had had that. And under in Babylon, they had Nebuchadnezzar. Was he a righteous man? No. Darius the Mede, was he a... No. Artaxerxes, I mean, the list goes on. They had been surrounded by pagan kings, none of whom were righteous. This king was going to be somebody different than anybody else that they had ever been exposed to or any type of king that they could conceive of. He was one animated by righteousness. Second, he is bringing salvation. He is endowed with salvation. And there might be some discussion as to whether or not this is physical deliverance of the nation or spiritual deliverance. It, I think it refers to both. Ultimately, when Jesus came back and he came into Jerusalem during that final week, he came back to purchase salvation and to procure righteousness for his people. So that is a, that is a spiritual salvation that's being described. But... God, through Jesus Christ, also provides physical deliverance for his people Israel, which is described even right here in this context. He is a king who has secured our eternal spiritual salvation, and he is ultimately, when he returns, a king who will secure the physical security of his people against all threats of violence. And third, he is humble. He is humble. The word there, in some translations, it's it's translated as lowly. The word actually doesn't refer to a state of mind of thinking of people more important than yourself. The word actually, the primary meaning of the word is poor, wretched, and afflicted. That's what the word means. Lowly, that is despised. Poor, wretched, and afflicted. There's no better word that could be used to describe the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who was afflicted for our transgressions and bore our stripes and brought us healing than that word. He was lowly. He was poor. He was afflicted. He was punished. He was abused. He was of low stature. That's our king. And the fourth one, and in, in humble, it, it is humble in the sense that this one, as Paul says in Philippians 2, who existed in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be held onto and used for his own advantage, but he willingly forfeited that position and the benefits of that equality with God so as to humble himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it is humility that is being described here, but it is the humility of a lowly, afflicted, poor, and wretched state. And the fourth, his presentation to the nation would be in keeping with his character. Look at his presentation. He will be humble. He mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. So his presentation as king to the nation of Israel would be in keeping with his character. He is a, a man who is righteous. He is bringing salvation. And he is a man of lowly stature. And so he comes not riding on a horse, not surrounded by chariots, not bringing with him an army, but sitting on a donkey. Now it's not that a donkey was a humiliating means of transportation in that day. It wasn't. It just wasn't something you would expect a king to arrive on. And, it, and his arrival on a donkey is an indication not only of his humility, but also his peaceful purposes. So that is the character of this king. He is 
humble. Sorry, he is righteous. He is bringing salvation. He is humble. And he is mounted on a donkey. Now you and I have to say that is an odd portrait of a king, is it not? How many of you know world rulers who are humble? Lowly? Afflicted? Poor? How many of you knew state rulers who are humble, lowly, afflicted, and poor? It almost seems like anybody who gets any position of power or authority is the exact opposite of everything that we read here. We are not familiar. None of us have ever experienced a king. We are not familiar in this world with a king who is righteous, who delivers people from their distress, who is humble, afflicted, lowly, poor, and who would present himself to his people in that stature. The world is completely opposite of this king. We think of if, if you are going to rule people, you need to, you need to come out, you need to impress the cameras, you need to be, you need to be good looking, you need to be charming, you need to be charismatic. That's how the world thinks. But this king is the opposite of what a world, world, the world would look for in a king. It's the polar opposite. Not what you expect. A poor king? I mean, that's a contradiction in terms, is it not? If you are a king, how can you be poor? You have the wealth of the nations at your hands. So even reading this, it would seem far-fetched to them that this king, that they would have a king to begin with, but that this king would be this type of king, righteous and poor and afflicted? How can a king be afflicted? We're familiar with kings who afflict other people. That's the job of a king is to afflict people. We expect that, but we don't expect our kings to be afflicted. And yet this king would be afflicted. Now verse 10. I will cut off... Now, by the way, verse 9 is the verse that is quoted by Matthew and John. Verse 10 is not. And I would ask you why is verse 9 quoted, but verse 10 is not. Because he, verse 10 is describing this king as well. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now why is verse 9 quoted in reference to being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but verse 10 is not quoted in the New Testament by those authors? It is because verse nine has, verse 10 has not yet been fulfilled. But it will be. Just as certainly as verse 9 was fulfilled to the letter, verse 10 will also likewise be fulfilled to the letter. But he is not describing, it's not that Matthew and John are forgetting that verse 10 is there, it's that Matthew and John know that verse 9 was fulfilled at the first coming, but they don't say verse 10 was, because verse 10 was not fulfilled at his first coming. Verse 10 remains yet to be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled. So when Zechariah describes this king as being one who would cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war, all of these things will be cut off and these are all implements of war and destruction and violence. This king will put an end to all of that. This king will put an end to war because he will speak, or that is to publish, peace to the nations. By his very word, he will bring peace to people. And there will be peace, and in the words of Psalm 72, he will bring peace and it will be an international peace because his rule will be from sea, and it's a Hebrewism, meaning from the beginning of the sea all the way around to the beginning of that same sea. In other words, it will be a universal and it will be a worldwide reign and it will be a universal and worldwide peace. But that has not happened yet. Now you notice that there is obviously a difference, a gap, between verse 9 and verse 10. Do you notice that? How long is that gap? Well, roughly about 2,000 years, right? This is something that we see typically in Old Testament prophets, and it shouldn't disturb you at all, because here's how Old Testament prophets looked at the, the person and work of the Messiah. They saw it all as one. They didn't make distinctions between a first coming and a second coming. They didn't see those distinctions. They oftentimes would describe the work of the Messiah, even though these works or these events would be thousands of years apart, 2,000 at least. They would describe the work of the Messiah sometimes together, even in the same sentence just separated by a comma. But that comma would be the difference of 2,000 years. 
Because they just, they saw it all as one. They didn't see the time frame like we, like we do today. You see it in Isaiah chapter 9 in a familiar passage that has to do with the birth of Christ, where Isaiah says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's beautiful, isn't it? It's every Christmas card, and we get that, and we love that. We know when that happens, right? The birth of Christ, that's when that happened. Very next phrase says, And the government will rest on his shoulders. Has he taken the mantle of government to himself? Does he rule the nations today? Is he running the United States of America? You better hope not. Is this all that you can expect of a righteous rule and reign of the Messiah on this earth? You better hope it's not. He's not doing that. He hasn't taken the government, the mantle of power and authority upon his shoulders and ruled in this earthly sphere in a kingdom like the Jews promised. He hasn't done that. But Isaiah says he would take the the government will be upon his shoulders. That means he will wear the royal robe and have the authority of government on himself and he will rule and he will reign. And it says, His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That's what the Messiah will do. That hasn't happened yet. So Isaiah describes these two events. A son will be given to us, first coming. The government will be upon his shoulders and he will establish the throne of his father David and he will rule over it and there will be no end to the increase of his government. There will be no end to the increase of his peace and he will rule over that forever and ever and ever. And the Jews in Isaiah's day would have said the same thing as the Jews in Zechariah's day said and that is, how can these things be? Our Davidic kingdom has crumbled in Isaiah's day. It had crumbled to the point where it was almost beyond repair. How could those promises be fulfilled? In Zechariah's day, it had been demolished. And so the question would be, how can that be? And Isaiah answers the question because the very last phrase of verse 7 of Isaiah 9 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's not, it's not men. The church is not going to do this. You're not going to do this. Government institutions are not going to do this. It is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will establish His kingdom and set His king over it and rule over the nations. That is God's doing and He will do it. And listen, verse 10 is just as certain to be fulfilled as verse 9 was. And God has already told us how we are to interpret prophecies regarding the future. That is, the same way we are to interpret the prophecies regarding things that have already passed. God has already told us how prophecy is intended to be interpreted. It's not intended to be mysticized. uh, That's not even a word. uh, Mystical. That's not a word either. It's not intended to be made into some mystery or an allegory or a metaphor or spiritual or symbolic. No, it was a literal donkey. He came literally on the back of a literal donkey. He was a literal king. And that was interpreted and that was fulfilled exactly as it was written in Zechariah, as far-fetched as that might sound. And listen, the prophecies regarding his soon and coming return will be fulfilled in exactly the same manner as all of the prophecies regarding his first coming were fulfilled, and that is exactly as God has written it. So what were the Jews expecting when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? They were expecting a king who would come and establish the throne of David and resurrect the Davidic kingdom and rule from Jerusalem over the nations and publish peace to the nations. And his rule would be from the sea to shining sea, from the beginning of creation to the end of creation. There would be no increase or no limit to the increase of his government or of peace. That was what they were expecting. And why were they expecting it? Because that is exactly what God promised through the prophets. Every last detail was what God had promised. And the Jews believed that God will keep his word. Should you and I expect that? Has God promised it? He has. How has He fulfilled His word so far? Exactly as He said it was going to happen, it happened. And exactly as He says it will happen, it will happen. And the best quote to sum all of this up is from a commentary by David Barron on Zechariah. And with this I close. 
Quote, but this is sure and certain that however long the pause may be, God never loses the tread of the purpose which he has formed for this earth. And as surely as the prophecies of the sufferings of Christ have been literally fulfilled, so surely will those also be which relate to his glory and reign. And although Israel and the nations have had to wait long for it, the angel's song at the birth of our Savior, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, will yet be realized, and Christ will not only be owned by his own people as the king of the Jews, but his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Why can we say that with certainty? Because God has written it, and he has said that it will be so. And that is what God promised through Zechariah. That is our king, and that is his kingdom. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in your goodness to us and the promises that you've given to us in your word. And as far-fetched and seemingly impossible as some of these things seem to us, humanly speaking, we know that there is nothing that is impossible with you and that your zeal, your arm, your power will accomplish all of this. We look forward to and long for the day when that kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will will rule over and reign over all of the nations. And as it is described in Zechariah 14, all of the nations of this earth will come up and worship the king and give to him homage and obedience and love and affection. And you will do that because it is your will for your people and for the glory of your name. And we thank you for this. We look forward to and long for a time of righteousness when righteousness rules and reigns over this earth from sea to sea and even to the ends of the earth. We thank you in Christ's name, our soon and coming king. And may it be so. May you even come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.